We believe it'll be about £300,000. £300,000? Sorry, three... 10,000 police officers? What are you saying? <laughs> no, I mean, sorry. How much will they cost? They will cost... They will... It will cost... Um, about... I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Yeah, my, my fear is that uh, the whole island will uh, become so overly populated that it will tip over and, uh, and capsize. Uh, we don't anticipate that. Chuck Graham, state senator's here. Chuck, stand up, Chuck, let him see you. Oh, God love you. What am I talking about? And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! Ah! Hello, and welcome back to the Global Inquirer, uh, undergraduate research podcast that studies how global trends impact real lives. I'm joined here today with Nicholas Mortensen, a fourth-year security and justice major. He is back from his study abroad in Germany. It's very nice to have you back, Nick. Good to be back. So I understand that you went into this week's kind of research with a clear idea in mind and it kind of got turned around. Can you clue the listeners into what you were looking at? Yeah, so the idea I was going for was very simple theme, words that kill. Sort of this idea that there are certain things that politicians say that just immediately destroy, nuke their careers, destroy their campaigns, or just sort of end up with them on the streets. And my hope for the episode was, okay, we can go through, find some funny case studies of, you know, political candidates screeching, people saying stupid things, and then we could put that into a big old compilation and just recall a day there. And what I ended up discovering is that things are a lot more complicated than that. And I, I was taking a running list of various politicians who I thought would have destroyed their own careers through their own mistakes, their own gaffes. Again, along the entire words that kill idea. So there's the case of Philip Jenginger, and he was the president of West Germany in 1988. And you have to understand that in the German system, president is mostly a ceremonial honorific role, but it's still very important. And in November 1988, this was the 50th anniversary of the Kristallnacht, he gave a speech that was seen as very poorly worded and in many ways was somewhat disrespectful to the memory of the entire event. And he was forced to resign after that. However, even though he was forced to resign for a very badly bungled speech, especially with Germany's history, he still maintained a lot of plum posting ambassadorships in the 1990s. He was an ambassador to the Holy See, as well as an ambassador to Austria for some time. One can also take a look at Boris Johnson, uh, listen to any of the things he said recently or further in the past, and you have to understand that he is now Prime Minister of Great Britain. You can take a look at Michael Dukakis in 1988 when he was running the Republican primary where he was looking very foolish in a tank trying to improve his image as sort of this big military man, commander-in-chief type, and got laughed out of the room. And yeah, he did lose his campaign, and many people credit that loss to that particular gaffe of him trying to ride on a tank. But afterwards, he finished up his governorship in Massachusetts. And he landed on Amtrak's board of directors as well as a professorship with Northeastern University. I mean, he landed on his feet, no problem. John Kerry, who is Obama's secretary of state from 2013 to 2017, in a diplomatic visit to the Middle East, made a number of mistaken statements regarding the U.S. drone program in Pakistan, as well as the U.S. stance on the recent 
Egyptian military takeover of the country, or at least the Egyptian military takeover of the government. And his statements really broke with American policy or were not very well conceived, but he still served a very long and very respected tenure as Secretary of State. And there are just 15 billion other small-time gaffes where, yeah, the the person in question made a mistake. They, they said something dumb, but they still had a career afterwards. They weren't thrown overboard. They weren't, they weren't dragged out and never allowed to run for anything again. And even when their campaigns did fail, there was more going on to that. But, I mean, surely there are some examples of just absolutely things you cannot say uh, within political theater, right? Yeah, and this actually is a good segue into the conversation I had with Brad Carson. I'm a professor of public policy at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy here at the University of Virginia. And I came to this position after a career in law, politics, and academia. I began as a lawyer. I was elected to the U.S. Congress from the 2nd District of Oklahoma, served two terms there, and then um, joined some businesses, became a teacher at the University of Tulsa in my home state of Oklahoma, and then uh, joined the Obama administration where I served for almost six years in a variety of positions. When that administration ended, I was lucky to, uh, to join the University of Virginia. And he actually sort of talked about the delineation, sort of there being two categories of gaffes. One is there are things you can say that are just so outrageous, so controversial, that people are kind of, they have their consciences shocked by it. Um, and, you know, I think maybe the paradigm example is Enoch Powell, a very brilliant British politician, conservative politician. You know, this is a man who translated Homer, uh, you know, was an extraordinary intellectual. And he gave a speech about, citing the rivers of blood, a Virgil quote, since he knew his classics so well, talking about the threat of immigration to the UK in the early 1970s, and that the Tiber would overflow and foment with blood and this kind of citation. And it was seen as um, beyond the pale, really, right? Even though it was this kind of very um, erudite reference. But he was talking about, you know, the, th the immigrants could, you know, cause the rivers to overflow with blood. And that basically ended his career. So you can say things that are so offensive to people, so such a hot button that it does end your career. And yeah, there are certain things that if you say will have immediate and severe consequences and reprisal, but generally it's a lot more complicated than that. I think the second category is one where you do see blunders being blown up. It's where it fits a pre-existing narrative of who you are. So when Gerald Ford stumbles walking down the staircase of the airplane, Right, he's seen as kind of a clumsy figure, and that becomes a metaphor for his whole um, his whole being. While if Barack Obama, who is an athlete, you know, had stumbled down that, it would be, you know, something you wouldn't even think about the next day. It might be like a clip on John Stewart, but it wouldn't be something that kind of defined who he was. In the same way, Michael Dukakis riding in the tank in the nineteen eighty eight election with a helmet on, right? he looked a little goofy. And because he didn't have a strong leadership persona and seemed ill at ease around the military, it kind of defined who he was, that this was a man who's not really up to being commander-in-chief. You know, it had been different if, say, you know, Ronald Reagan had been in that because he's kind of had a different persona about things. So I think the blunders that really hurt are ones that fit a narrative and can become you know, uh, kind of a, a metaphor, really, for, for your whole approach to life or your whole your whole personality. Machiavellian French state mentality ran, right? There are mistakes and there are blunders, to paraphrase him. And right there are times that telling the truth can be a blunder because it might compromise 
a role you have to fill or long-term plans, right? The local might might be com might compromise the kind of global interest. And so there are times, right, that um, telling the unvarnished truth in public said is something that you should probably hold off on. That's not to say lie about it. You don't need to say everything that's going on too, especially if you have certain kind of ceremonial or you have a strong role that you're filling. I don't think it's dangerous if you know what you want to say and if you're the kind of person who doesn't say things that are racially offensive or um, profane or engage in you know, other kind of obscenities or offensive conduct. It's not a particular danger, but it is, especially in the last 10 to 15 years, a world where everything you say in public life is recorded. You know, even 20, 30 years ago, you could go make a speech in some small town to a group of, say, the local Republicans or the local Democrats, and nobody would know what you said. You know, perhaps someone would write it down, and you know, if you were really unfortunate, a small town paper might pick it up. That'd probably be the worst case. Today, in a big campaign, you have trackers from the opposing candidates always following you around, videotaping you. And so any kind of small mistake you make right, is captured by them and then put up on television as a kind of ad or broadcast through social media channels, right, to get it out. So it is a world today where, where there is less room for mistakes. But I don't think if you're in politics, you can worry about making mistakes. And most people, right, really don't. Um, or if they do, they're interpreted as kind of good faith mistakes and not something that's career ending or something that's you know, enormously calamitous to them. The entire idea that your flubs or your gaffes are the reason for a politician's career dying is completely and totally oversimplified. It, you're losing a lot of dimensions, and it just doesn't really reflect the truth. There are different kinds of gaffes. Are you just saying too much? Are you saying something stupid? Are you saying something that's untrue? What the British ambassador said to get, you know, get him ousted is very different from what Howard Dean did to get laughed out of the room. I'm sorry, for those of us who might not know, what, what did uh, Howard Dean do? So Howard Dean, this was in Iowa in 2004. So this, is what, this was him running for in the Democratic primary and in a campaign rally, uh, during a speech, he, well, I think it's just more charitable if we play this on the episode. We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. And we're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Yeah! But... Even then, and the entire idea is in the media or the popular narrative is that this is the this is what killed Howard Dean. You know, this is what got him laughed out of the room. This is how his his career's campaign ended. There's a lot more to that. Well, I think the Howard Dean scream is an example of that second category of blunder, where it became a metaphor for his whole effort. You know, and we know, right, history shows us that he didn't perceive it as a scream at the time. There were issues with the acoustics in the room and how right, his speech was being broadcast. And so he was just kind of making, you know, kind of a, um, a, a yell of support. And it came across on TV where he's all mic'd up and where the audio is perfect, right, as some kind of outrageous thing. And again, it became a metaphor for him, right, that this was an undisciplined, a little bit wild Right, kind of out there advocating for things that many people say, like this is you know outside the Overton window of how we think about kind of current politics, and so it became metaphorical in that sense. So Howard Dean's right; they might have lost because they were undisciplined, because they were a little bit wild. And the scream is the way people said, like, yeah, you know, it became a metaphor, a synecdoche of sorts, right, for that 
um, for that kind of behavior. So the media plays an important role because they help establish the narrative of who you are. And if you're running for the president, especially before media became so diffuse, right, the media would set you up as a kind of certain kind of person, you know, and right, and then people, every event you do or every word you say is kind of interpreted through that narrative. And so, right, for Howard Dean, the media did jump onto that because it was a way to say like, yeah, look, this guy's really undisciplined. And you look at this crazy scream, right, which showed you right, that he's not an orthodox politician and maybe in, uh, not orthodox in a very kind of, um, in a bad way. So it seems to me that it's just easy to look back at these moments and say that's what killed these careers. Uh, it's more of kind of like a milestone moment, but it might not necessarily paint the whole truth. Is that what you're saying? It absolutely does not paint the whole truth. And sort of if we're going with Carson's example of like a category one gaffe, which is just the things that you simply do not say in a category two gaffe, within that second category, there's a lot more room. Um, and this is where political theater becomes very, very important. I don't think they do create it. You create it as a candidate. And then you try to you know, have an interaction with the media as they follow you. Right? But you create your own narrative by the actions you do. You know, so um, how you speak, kind of the issues you emphasize, how you carry yourself, how you dress. Right? These are all things that um, right, people latch onto as symbols of your personality. And it creates a narrative, but you choose it. So the media is incredibly important in forming those narratives, but it isn't quite that simple. Actually, the narrative surrounding candidates is not just a one-way relationship with the media telling people what to think. It's a relationship between the campaign and what people are saying. You know, I'll give you another example of a blunder that fits into what I call that Category 2 blunder. When Al Gore had Naomi Wolf, the author, a controversial author, um, be hired as an image consultant to make him into kind of an alpha man to right, by dressing him in different kind of colors and different outfits. And this fit the pre-existing narrative of him, right? that he was not strong, that he was not a masculine kind of person, right? that he was hiring somebody to make over his image, right? to make him an alpha, not a beta kind of person. You know, that wouldn't have been an issue if, for many people, if John McCain was running for president and he hired someone to be his image consultant to like change his suit color. First, he never would have done that because again, that's not the personality he had. So his narrative resisted that. But let's say he had done it under kind of duress from his campaign manager. Nobody would have said like, ah, McCain has issues, right? He's a beta and he's trying to be an alpha. But for, for Al Gore, that was actually a real issue. And again, so that small event which is really trivial in the course of his campaign, right, got blown up into a very symbolic moment. And so I don't think the media creates your, your image, right, but it's a give and take between how you yourself carry on, how your campaign presents you, and kind of how the media interprets. So there's kind of a, you know, a, a writer-reader aspect to it. Of course, things are changing with social media. People are more easily able to spread their messages and spread their opinions outside of a mainstream media outlet. Things are going to change a little bit. I think social media has changed the ability of certain gatekeepers to craft that narrative. You know, and we see this, I think, with President Trump, you know, where he avoids the mainstream media. He's seen by most people kind of elite media circles as really beyond the pale, right? Even, you know, I mean, it's not about Democrat, Republican, right? But his behavior is often seen as beyond the pale to them. And people are kind of, you know, outraged by it. But, right, because he's able to go to social media and craft a different narrative there, right? He still has a lot of electoral success. And so I think, 
you know, to think about the role the media is can't be thought about without looking at kind of the breakdown of gatekeepers in our society and the democratization of information. And right, Donald Trump has really benefited from that, right? That you don't have a few people in three or four publications and two or three you know, news, broadcast news outlets who can really determine what leads and what sets the image. Today, right, the, the candidates have much more control over that themselves. And the thing is that to some people, a flub or a gaffe might mean literally nothing. It's like, okay, this guy made this mistake. We're all human. Congratulations. But to other people, if you're not following the campaign or the politician as quickly, or you're just not as involved in politics, what can be meaningless to one person can be very meaningful to someone else, especially as they head to the ballot box. Well, I suppose I personally don't care about those blunders uh, because I realize people make them and kind of understand why some get blown up and not. I care about them only to the extent that I realize that the electorate does. And right in a world where people don't care intensely about politics, unlike me, who follows it avidly, been involved in it, right? most people don't have other things to do in their life. And so they do look at symbolic issues or these kind of metaphors to see whether this person is a candidate like me or not, right? And so um, I mentioned that to that extent, right? So again, this category two, blunders, John Kerry windsurfing, right, off of, uh, you know, off of Cape Cod or Nantucket, wherever he was. You know, that's a fun thing. Who wouldn't love to go windsurfing up off of, you know, in the heat of summer in the off of uh, Massachusetts, but that fit into the narrative again, right? This was not a beer drinking guy who was going to be comfortable down at the local bar with you, right? That he was, you know, windsurfing or that he was, you know, had his carbon fiber bike in France, you know, and broke his leg biking around, you know, dressed in Lycra and doing all this kind of stuff. And people are like, you know, that's not, you know, that's not what the average Joe does. So they became metaphors, right? In a way that if you weren't already a plutocrat married to Teresa Hines, with a view by many people that, hey, this guy's a little out of touch, right? Those things wouldn't have resonated. You know, if um, an average Joe candidate, right, went out and windsurf, people would say, okay, you know, fun recreational activity. So that's the kind of thing I think it's interesting is because to be in politics is to be interested in theater, right? And I accept that theater is a false representation and isn't necessarily related to good governance, but there is a theatrical element to it. And when people choose to present themselves in that theater in particular ways, it becomes interest both intellectually and because I would like certain people to win or lose, right? I mentioned how my candidates are doing, you know, in that respect and, and don't want them to, to make mistakes. Your conversation about social media with Carson makes me think that sometimes these gaffes have been advantageous, especially you look at these 2020 primaries for the Democrats. Uh, you get these moments where people make genuine mistakes and it's blown up, thrown all over Twitter. And in the end, the worst that happens is this candidate gets a lot more name recognition. And that's exactly it. This is where the political theater comes into it. And this is what Carson talks a lot about is that if th if people have a reason to believe that that was just a mistake, people are generally willing to tolerate. It. However, if you already have an image, well, so w we can draw a completely theoretical example. If on the campaign trail, you have a reputation for being a complete and total nerd, like n not in the wonky kind of way that Bill Clinton and other people tried to sell themselves as, but like just kind of a nerd, the, the stereotypical one that people tend to deride. And you then go up and for whatever reason, you have a terrible head cold that day, but you sound really nasally or you kind of fit the bill. 
that's going to hurt you a lot more than another candidate who's just having a bad head cold that day. All of those mistakes, all those gaffes are interactive and reactive with the image and the idea that people have of that candidate. And that is very much a product of the candidate's own efforts, how they want to sell themselves. Working in politics is about being in character, but it also has to do with the media relationship that they have. It's, it's a give and take on both sides. However, there are going to be times where either you've gone too far because you've said something that is so egregious, kind of going back to the category one points, or you've, you have a gaffe that you're known for that's repeated so, so often that people can't really afford to be around you anymore. Well, you keep them on because it's a clubby business, right? You work together, you're close friends, you've risen through the ranks since you were teenagers sometimes, right, to lead the, lead the party. And so you're close friends. And so it's natural, right, that you give people the benefit of the doubt and that you keep them around unless you're forced to throw them overboard. Um, but you do get thrown overboard sometimes, right, mostly when the continued association you perceive is going to be right, damaging to your own career. So, I mean, I think that's it. You see examples of people who are, who are exiled, right, because um, take a, think, I'll give you an example. Steve King, the congressman from Iowa today, the Republican congressman there, who Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, has you know, stripped of his committee assignments, who Republicans in the House have kept at far arm's length, would like him to quit, you know, making his life hell. And right, because they realize that, you know, Steve King is going to be a liability for them. And many of them are probably friends with Steve King, right? They know him and have served with him. So it's not personal. But there is a business aspect, right, where at some point you do say, you know what, I, the one thing I do care about more even than our relationship, right, is the success of our party, you know, our own electoral success, the personal and professional success we have. And if you, Steve King, are jeopardizing that, we will throw you overboard. And in fact, that's what they've done. So there are these breaking points where most politicians aren't going to immediately cut you out or you're not immediately going to get cut out of the race if you make one mistake. But there are certain breakpoints, and those are going to vary massively by country to country, culture to culture, geographic location, geographic location. And you have to be really careful about that. No, I think certainly, right? There are definitely kind of more cultural touchstone, different cultural touchstones, you know, in, in different places, right? You can call into question your history in some particular, you know, interpretations of history in certain countries in different ways than others. So yes, you know, the United States to call into question, you know, the U.S. Constitution, right, or things like that, right, it would be kind of a, or, or racism, because those questions are so powerful, right? The whole immigration sentiment here, I think, is different than it is in Europe, too, right, about how elites handle those questions. So yes, I think, right, every country, you know, has its, um, its kind of uh, red lines, if you will, and if you cross over them, you know, you'll, you'll be in trouble. They do, you know, in the West, you can see a certain similarity among them, but they will differ, I think, slightly from place to place. But then you get to the problem of repeating the same mistake over and over. And this gets into the issue of what Carson calls the Lifetime Achievement Award, which is what I call it, these kinds of things, right? Like the final blow is just really for a lifetime of doing something, right? So, you know, Steve King said something that, for example, that people finally exiled him from the party. But he'd been saying these kind of things for years. And the last statement he made wasn't something so different than what he'd done previously. It's finally like, you know, we're just tired of it, right? And it became, again, what I call a Lifetime Achievement Award. But I think it's important to emphasize, right, you can usually recover from blunders that don't call into question the central archetype that you're presenting. 
So, you know, take, take the Obama-Biden situation, right? Biden had to drop out of the 1988 presidential race because he plagiarized Neil Kinnock, the British labor politician. And, and that fed into a narrative about him. Like, you know, maybe he's not, like, intellectually robust enough to, um, right, to be president of the United States. He graduated at the bottom of his class from Syracuse and things like that. So, like, it fed into this narrative. Like, you know what? Look, he's not that smart. And that may be unfair to him, but that was the narrative. And then the blunder said, like, see what we said. Now, if Barack Obama had been found to have plagiarized a part of his memoir, right? You know what people, nobody would say, like, oh, he's stupid, right? I knew it. He was really stupid because Barack Obama presented himself and people knew, like, this is a very brilliant man, among the most brilliant politicians we've ever had. So that's, I think, how it works, right, is when you have a blunder, it becomes so metaphorical for your whole being, and that's kind of the capstone of a lifetime of like similar things, then, then I think it can be quite fatal. But if it's not, if people will just be like, hey, you know, people make mistakes. They fall down the, they fall down the stairs, right? They make a you know, verbal gaffe, right? It doesn't speak to kind of their whole thing. You know, another example, when people like, you know, there have been some Southern politicians in the last 20 years who got caught up praising Confederates or neo-Confederates or people who uh, were white supremacists in their earlier incarnations. And, right, Joe Biden did that when he talked about working with a couple of senators and people like Kamala Harris and others criticized it. But nobody said to Joe Biden, we think you're a racist for doing this. They might have said, like, you know, you, you shouldn't do that. And he kind of backed away a little bit. But when Trent Lott did it, people said, you know what we said, this guy from Mississippi, right, he got his start in kind of, you know, white politics down there. And look, we knew he was secretly a racist, right? It said that. So that's, I think, so important about like what people see this in the context of your whole career. You know, for Joe Biden, it was like a true, like, just mistake. It wasn't a career blunder because nobody thought like, oh, I knew it, right? And I'll use this as just a metaphor for his whole being. But in Trent Lott's case, right, people, some people did do that. And I said, you know, you could say it's fair or unfair, but I think that's how you have to see these blunders is in the context of kind of the archetype that you that you present yourself as. When Carson says Lifetime Achievement Award, the other way to say it is the straw that broke the camel's back. Unless you really go beyond the pale, you're not going to blow up immediately. It's when a fumble, a flub, a gaffe, or any other mistake really starts hurting someone's political prospects, it's because that rides on top of a fairly significant pile of concerns people have, narratives and ideas that they have of them, and previous mistakes that they've made. So Howard Dean in 2016 wrote an op-ed where he acknowledged that <laughs> but he outright said himself that <laughs> wasn't it. The reason why he lost is because he was an undisciplined candidate, his campaign management was bad, and they weren't able to capitalize on any momentum they might have gotten from Iowa. And if you just pay attention to that, <laughs> you're not going to know any of that. And that's just information that you don't know that is a massive oversimplification of the history. All right. Well, that's all we have for you this week. Thank you for tuning in. As always, you can check our podcast out wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Music, Spotify, the whole gambit. Be sure to check us out next week where we have Anna Von Spakovsky and Katya Sanko talking about Russian political protest culture. See you then.